But if you don't have the right attitude and the right heart, you're never going to be great at being a DSP because the people that we support, they know who cares about them and who is there to collect a paycheck. They can spot a phony a mile away. And when you have good people that have dedicated their lives to this work, it's important that their story be told. Welcome to Sharing in Our Caring, the podcast that brings thought leaders, policymakers, and industry insiders together to shed light on the human services sector that's often overlooked, but impacts us all. Tune in each episode for engaging conversations aimed at making positive change in this space. Welcome back to Sharing in Our Caring. I'm your host, Elliot Masuda, the Strategic Partnerships Manager at Foothold Technology. My co-host, Paul Rossi, is the Head of Customer Advocacy at Foothold Technology. So, Paul, why don't you tell us what we have on deck today? Absolutely, Elliot. I'm super excited to share the interview on the care economy we did with our guest, Greg Miller, who's the CEO of Penmar Human Services. Penmar provides services for individuals with developmental and cognitive disabilities and works within both the public and private sector to fund and maintain those services. Yeah. And you know what I love about Greg is his unique compassion for the lives of the disabled and those supporting them. You really hear the passion in our conversation and his drive to not only change the way we value the care economy individually, but also systemically. For sure. It's a great conversation spanning how to engage and retain the workforce when competing industries pay more tips on sourcing funding, and where people can access resources in their communities. Let's take a listen. Greg, one thing I'd love to hear a little bit more, Greg, is kind of your backstory about how you came up the ranks. I think it really touches on what we're going to talk about today of engagement and career tracks and recruitment and retention of the direct support professionals. Yeah, so when I was leaving college, I went to college, did my undergrad at Shippensburg University, which is where I met my wife. And our next door neighbor was a professor at Western Maryland College, which is now McDaniel College. And he was starting a program down there called Target, which was a combination of new provider of services for people with disabilities and also an educational component where people that would come in to that organization would also uh, continue their studies and would leave with a graduate degree two years later. They wanted to start a home there for three children that were institutionalized, and they wanted to bring them back into the community, and they thought that maybe a young couple would be willing to give that a shot. So my wife and I agreed to open that. It was probably the first house in Maryland for kids. And so for a little over two years, My wife and I ran that residential home, lived with the boys, lived on site, literally, you know, had an instant family. And, you know, and it consumed our lives both from a work standpoint, as well as, you know, going back to school, getting our our master's degrees. And that was really where I kind of cut my teeth in the field. I've always been very comfortable with people with disabilities. I have a couple of cousins who have disabilities, and I was always for some reason, more attracted to them than I was to my cousins that didn't have disabilities and uh, spent a lot of time connecting with them. So that was that was how I got started in the field. And that was probably 35 years ago. And it got in my, my blood, but more importantly, it got in my heart very, very quickly. And it's never left and it never will. Excellent. That's a unique path, but what a wonderful way to get started. What's interesting too, I think, is that that really gives you some insight into 
as a leader of a large organization that employs a number of DSPs, you're uniquely sort of positioned to know and understand what their needs are and ways to support and retain that we'll dig into in probably just a few minutes. You know, for me professionally, I knew that I wanted to be, I wanted to influence the entire field in one way, shape or form to take, you know, what I learned on a small scale and say, how could I really leverage that to improve the lives of a dozen people or a hundred people or several hundred people? But many of our DSPs here at Penmar and, you know, across the country, that is not necessarily just a pathway to something else. For many, that is a career. It's a noble career. It's frustrating for me 35 years later, still having to advocate for DSPs as a true career and not simply simply a spot where you get enough experience so you can go become a manager or whatever. Our field needs people at my level that have that experience, but it also needs to value people at the DSP level and say, that is a worthy career and we want to invest in that for you because that's what you are really, really great at. And so I see that here a lot at Penmar where there are just some amazing people that in many ways have been put on this earth to do what they do. And we need to affirm and value that as best we can. It's neat to hear you say that because I do think that people don't recognize how vital that role is and, and the skill set that people have that do that job well is not something that you can learn most of the time. I mean, I think that you can train people to do the sort of the tasks But the folks that really are at home as carers, as people that really support other individuals to have a full life, that's more art, I think, than science. We see the struggles as the retention because it isn't recognized, like you said, and we share in the disappointment that all these years later, you're still having to advocate for folks. If you don't have the right attitude and the right heart, you're never going to be great at being a DSP because the people that we support, they know. Like they know who cares about them and who is there to collect a paycheck. They can spot a phony a mile away. And when you have good people that have dedicated their lives to this work, it's important that their story be told. Because when you look at the larger care economy that, you know, that we're dealing with in our country right now, you know, many, many people are going to need somebody to come alongside of them at some part of their life. And many folks are moving into that phase of their life right now. And you can have somebody that cares about getting paid, or you can have somebody that cares about you. And I think through COVID, we also had, as crazy as COVID was, I think COVID also presented a unique opportunity as people were forced to be isolated. And more people can relate to that now because they were forced into that. The COVID experience has in many ways given people a fresh insight on how important relationships are. All of us are designed to be in relationships with other people and people with disabilities especially are at their best when they're being surrounded by people that legitimately care about their welfare. That was very insightful. I didn't really think of it in terms of how COVID could open up that opportunity for people to understand a little bit more. Because I feel in advocacy for the disability community, that's one thing is if it's not around you or if you never be, haven't been impacted by it, it kind of, you know, you don't really think about it, which is unfortunate. 
which is why we created this podcast. So <laughs> I appreciate that there's a positive story coming out of COVID. So you did mention care economy. I think many people have a different understanding of what care economy really is. Could you give us a little bit about what you, how you define the care economy? It's how society in general is going to provide support across the entire gamut. Kids need support at a very, very young age. How do we help families? How do we help young mothers who want to work to provide some type of good opportunities uh, for their children where they can sleep well at night, knowing that they're being well cared for? And then you think of how that evolves through time and the aging of America and with medical advances, you know, we're living longer. And as we age, we're going to need those same type of supports in many ways at a different level, but the same type of support that kids needed when they were young. And as people that have special needs or people with disabilities need throughout their life. And so while in many ways, I think when you talk about the care economy, it helps people to understand a little bit more how important it is. It's also extra challenging because more and more people are going to require it. So the workforce necessary to provide it is getting pulled in a lot of different directions. Can you describe the current situation for disability providers now? Because I think I work with a lot of our association partners that support the community-based organizations, and it feels that a lot of them are saying it's a little bit different. You've been in the industry set for like 35 years. So would you agree with that? Well, I can tell you the entire time that I have been in this field, there has never been a year that has gone by where anyone has said, wow, we finally got all the funding we need to do everything that we want to do, right? So this issue of how we provide support to our team members, and specifically, you know, the entire industry is built on the back of direct support professions. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the supports that are being provided there ultimately determine the value that's being brought to a person's life. So I would say from that standpoint, over the last 35 years that I've been a part of this field, that continues to be the same in that additional investments are always going to be necessary. And it always feels like it's just a battle to tell the story and to help folks at the government levels, whether that's the state, the federal government, to really infuse a way to better value the occupation of direct support professionals. And I think it's actually been accelerated even more in the inflationary environment that we find ourselves in, is that while we used to be competitive outside of our field with other industries like retail and fast food and Wawa's and farm, you know, Royal Farms, places like that, what we're finding right now is their, their wages are increasing so quickly that it's very, very hard for us to keep pace with that. And while that is all honorable work, and I would never suggest that that it's not, it's getting more and more challenging to get people to really consider a career as a direct support professional because they're already starting two or three or four dollars an hour behind where they could go and get an entry level job at Target, at Walmart, you know, at, at these places that have an ability that 
they have an ability to bend their curve in terms of resources. Because if you're like me, I still go into a, a restaurant to get a sandwich and I think it should be $3. Well, now it's $13. <laughs> you know, you can do that if you own a restaurant and it's not easy. But what we can't do in our field is artificially create more money by doing things differently. We can be efficient. We can be effective. We can be really, really smart. But at the end of the day, the resources that we get are the resources that we get. So it's not like we can just artificially raise our price. And I think that that is creating a real challenge specifically around people considering a career in this field in a way that I haven't seen to this degree, probably in my entire career. That's very interesting. I I was thinking between, you know, like the minimum wages in Pennsylvania and Maryland are very different from one another. I think it's almost a $5 difference now per hour with Maryland being in the lead. I need to point that out because we're still at $7 and a quarter, I think here in Pennsylvania. How does that impact? Like, do you employ DSPs on both sides of the border there? We do. Okay. And then not for the podcast perhaps, but do they make the same or do PA DSPs make a bit less than Maryland DSPs? We have not adopted a pay policy that differentiates by state. We do some differentiation based on the challenges that are inherent with certain people that we work with. So there may be some premiums, you know, to work with some folks that have additional challenges that creates a challenge for us as an organization being on both parts of the line. It also creates a challenge for us as we're supporting people in employment because the wage scales are quite different. But I think what I've seen you know, locally here in the York area is that wages are being driven up. So while, yes, the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, I don't know who's paying that because nobody around us is paying that three miles from us at Rudders, they're paying $19 an hour to start. I don't ever want to denigrate that type of work. I'm just saying that the the role of a professional working with people day in, day out has to be valued in a way that people say, hey, that's something that I'm able to do, I want to do, and I don't have to do it in such a sacrificial way that I'm going to be living in poverty. Right. Where does that extra money come from? It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't appear. Now, I will say that through the through the pandemic, there have been some infusions of, you know, with some of the ARPA funds that were were done and and, and how those have been passed on to our DSPs to, to make sure that we value the work as best they can. But when you're talking about a systemic issue, that systemic issue of living wages is not even close to being resolved at this point in terms of how our supports are funded. And in terms of advocating to funders, local government, state government, federal government, whoever you can extract money from to, you know, to supplement what it is you're doing there. Are you doing that advocacy on your own? I mean, we're familiar with some of the associations, of course, but who's out there doing the work to keep the lights on essentially? Because we work in two different states, we have two different associations. You know, there's PAR in Maryland that we're a part of, and there are others. There's a couple more. In Maryland, there's an organization called MAX, which is basically the trade organization that represents providers on the Maryland side. A big part of their mission is around advocacy 
So you have that collective advocacy done on that level. But then you also have individual advocacy. Like in my role as CEO at Penmar, I spend time in Harrisburg with our senators and our congressmen. And what I've seen over the last few years in both the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and in Maryland is that there's been such a changeover in legislators that it's like you got to go back to square one to help them understand, you know, we spent years and years and years helping our legislators understand what it is that we're doing, and then they're gone. Yeah. You know, so, so there's a piece of that that's really, really important. And then, of course, you, know, you, have the, you have the legislators themselves who every day during the session have people that represent worthy causes coming into them, asking them for money. So it's a prioritization. And we take the attitude here at Penmore that government is not our enemy and they're not the answer. They're a partner, not expecting government to always be there, you know, to have all the answers. But when you think of the people that live in our residential programs, if we don't do this well, and if they're not properly cared for, there's really no other place they can go kids go home to their moms and dad at night. You invest in places like Penmar. People are home at Penmar. Right. <laughs> this is where they live. And the intensity of supporting people through the pandemic, well, those DSPs have kids of their own at home. And they've got, you know, they had, you know, you talk about the plate being full. It was not only full, but it was overflowing. And in many ways, they're the untold heroes of helping, keeping people alive but also helping to provide value to people's lives through the pandemic. Thank God we're on the other side of this, but it truly is a story of heroes. Like you look back and you survived, but that's not what we want moving forward. Can you touch on what Penmar is doing to recruit and retain the talent that you have? Because you've talked about how we, you only have the resources available that you have, right? Because you're connected to federal and state, and you obviously have some grants that probably are ongoing and donations. But at the end of the day, to your point, it's relatively fixed. You can't charge a family extra money to take care of an individual or things like that. So any efforts that you have to share would be awesome. So one of the things that we do at Penmore that's very, very important to us and has created a lot of value for us is we created our own foundation many years ago, Penmore Foundation. It is has a, you know, a separate board of directors. There's crossover between our boards, but the foundation was created specifically for the purpose of supporting the charitable efforts of Penmore Human Services. So within that foundation, we have also created an endowment that supports direct support professionals and their career advancement. And this was a vision that I had about six years ago about how we could try to bend this curve long-term instead of trying to raise money every year to do something with the money that we've raised. So we created through our faithful partnerships with many of our families, foundations, businesses that support what we do, We've created this endowment within our foundation that provides the financial resources for direct support professional credentialing and what we call career ladders. We have created a partnership with the National Alliance of Direct Support Professionals out of New York. They have a credentialing process that we believe is a very sound process. 
And so we allow our team members to, to sign up for basically each year. There's a class, you know, it's like the class of 22 that's going to walk through the credentialing process. We pay for the training for that. We pay bonuses when people become certified for that. We pay retention bonuses when people stick around as long as it's, it, we don't consider it an entitlement. You still got to do a great job. I mean, it's still performance related. But that has been, and the idea of the endowment is to create that pool where we'll be able to pull off of that every year, a significant amount of resources. Our, our, our goal in that endowment is $10 million, so we're about halfway there. We also fund innovation through our foundation, and uh, we're involved right now in launching what, we're, what we call our belonging initiative. And that really is a deeper dive into, you know, inclusion, diversity, equity conversation around not just, you know, who do you have? What does it look like? Are you checking off all the boxes? But is every member of our team, when they come to work, do they bring their best self to work and do they feel like they truly belong and they're valued in our organization? So we're actually launching. We just launched that initiative. It'll be about a year long initiative. We're working with uh uh, a, a great partner from the University of Virginia that's going to help us with that right. project. It is going to be an ongoing challenge, but it's one that we have to have more control over by creating our own resources to invest in our team members. That's really significant. I don't know that I am aware of foundations associated with provider agencies that are doing that, to, you know, to sort of shore up and, and supplement the work that's happening. Is it something that's common? I don't think there's a lot of them. It's pretty involved. This is not just let's, you know, open up our own, you know, little nonprofit foundation and have, a, you know, a yard sale or a bake sale. You, you just it doesn't work that way. This is about really envisioning what it's going to take to change the future and then boldly investing in what that looks like and, and really sharing the value of the investment. It's just so important because when we have the opportunity to share that with people, most people want to be a part of that. And when they see how they can be a part of that and how investing in an organization like Penmar is truly in, an investment in the people that we support and in changing their lives. And that, that, that's not just the person with disabilities. That is our team as well. Because, you know, a, a healthy team creates, you know, healthy outcomes it's an ongoing challenge because the world is changing so quickly. We want to do as well as we can today, but we want to do a whole lot better tomorrow and figure out how we can do that. Our board of directors shares that vision, and that is why we've been able to do a lot of the things that we've done. We have a remarkable team here, and the expectations of how that team is going to perform is really, really high because it needs to be high. Because the people that we support, they deserve no less than that. Another piece of that that's really important is that when you're trying to create partnerships or you're trying to create investment opportunities, whether it's a, a foundation, whether it's businesses in your community that want to support your work, they want to know that you see it as a business as well. Because nobody wants to invest in something that's not sustainable. You could have the greatest mission in the world, but if somebody doesn't think you're going to be around a year from now, they're probably not going to want to be investing their money there because they don't see the long term. It's about having clear plans. It's about having execution strategies. 
And while nothing ever replaces the importance of the relationship at the point of contact with the people that we support, that is where the true quality of Penmar occurs. There's so much that has to happen within the organization to allow that to remain strong and to allow that to have long legs into the future. And so that's what we're spending a good bit of our time and our effort on right now is ensuring that future. It's why we call it our future. Our campaign title is Building Bold Futures. It's building a bold future for every person that we support in our organization and every team member that serves in our organization. And so that's just another piece of, of kind of building that professional business atmosphere and environment here at Penmore. Very well said. That's Great. awesome. You are in a place and you've created an organization that has resources from different areas, your foundation and things of that nature. Is there other things that you think we should be aware of to try to help spread the word or just, you know, we should be educated on as well? So I want to rely on the government because the government is a big portion of what we do. But I cannot rely on them to solve every problem that we have or to provide every resource that we need. I think that organizations that are struggling can either grumble and complain about it or you can do something about it. And while not everybody has the resources to do what we've done, when we started doing it, we didn't either. Right. I look around all the time and go, what are other organizations doing that's really great? Let's talk to them. How, you know, why did you do that? How did you do that? There's a lot of good stuff out there. And there's an opportunity always for innovation. Not satisfied with where you are. Don't expect somebody to bail you out. Go create those partnerships. Talk with people that were there and how did they get to that next step and, and really have a vision. And more than anything else, I, I would say to people is share your story and help people understand how they can become a part of making that a really, really great story for the people that, you know, are supported with disabilities. But it really is about how do we understand the value of the investment in this field that we've chosen, you know, to give our lives to. And so that story just needs to continue to be told. That was such a great conversation with Greg. And really what stood out for me during the episode was the silver lining he touched on during COVID. I hope this raises awareness of how instrumental direct support professionals are in building relationships with the individuals they serve. Absolutely. And what resonated with me was his origin story. And I am curious to know about how many other executive directors might have ascended from DSP into an executive director role. His passion has made such an impact and clearly will continue to have a lasting impact on his organization and through the new foundation that was launched during COVID, the individuals they serve and the community at large. Yeah, there were so many nuggets that Greg talked about around recruitment, retention, and elevating the DSP voice. In my role as the strategic partnerships manager, I really appreciated how he encouraged providers to learn from one another and engage with associations like the National Alliance of Direct Support Professionals who are out there advocating to elevate the voice of direct professionals each and every day. Yeah, and the emphasis on the professional development part I thought was so key, making sure that there is professional development, that there are livable wages and recognition for the role is really critical. I also hope that folks don't view a DSP role as temporary or entry level, but instead see it as a career, a really noble and necessary profession. 
not everybody can be a DSP. And I, and I think that it really takes a unique set of skills to do what they do each and every day and do it well. And I think that that's what we really heard from Greg. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. And with that, we want to thank our guest, Greg Miller. And as we do on each episode, we want to leave you with a final thought from our guest. So my, my final thought would be the people with disabilities add incredible value to daily life across every domain of life that there is. And historically, they've been shut out of a lot of those opportunities. And I think that as we continue to advance in kind of hopefully what we'll consider at some point a post-COVID world, we'll recognize that everybody has a contribution to make. And that those contributions need to be valued. And that at the heart of that is just an incredible workforce that each day comes to work to support people in all the complexity of the challenges of their lives. And they need to be valued and they need to be thanked because one day, probably all three of us are going to need somebody like that to help us in some aspect of our life. Everybody should be on the side of supporting people with disabilities and full inclusion in our society. So that's what I work for every day. I think that's what you guys, you know, are espousing through your podcasts. And that should be something that I would hope that all of us could agree on. Thanks for listening to Sharing in Our Caring, brought to you by Foothold Technology. Special thanks to our guest, Greg Miller. We also want to give a shout out to Sabrina and the good folks at Resonate who help us with production and editing. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please like and subscribe. And consider following us on our social media channels by searching at Foothold Tech. For more information, visit us at footholdtechnology.com and we'll catch you on the next episode.